You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded in Chicago at the Clio Cloud Conference, which has returned to the beautiful Radisson Blue Aqua Hotel. We're here to cover this event for you, our listeners. And joining me now, I have a special guest. I have Miss Dahlia Lithwick. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lawrence. So now, of course, Dahlia is a senior editor over at Slate, where she writes the Supreme Court Dispatches and Jurisprudence Columns. Uh, her work has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and Commentary. She's made appearances on CNN, ABC, The Colbert Report, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And uh, in current events, because uh, we found this, uh, you're uh, working on a book about the four women justices of the Supreme Court. So again, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Excellent. So now you just presented at an event called The Impact of Individuals on the Legal Profession. So for our benefit, give us, uh, you know, the 50,000-foot synopsis as to what that was about. Well, I mean, I was just trying to open up the Supreme Court a little for folks who don't get to sit in there like I do all the time. And, you know, kind of explain to attorneys who may not even imagine ever, ever, ever taking a case all the way to the court or knowing anybody who takes a case all the way to the court that people just like them have amazing, compelling clients that have amazing, compelling stories and that they need to find a way to penetrate this bubble of the Supreme Court. And really the sort of grim version of that is the court has become harder and harder to access for ordinary attorneys with ordinary clients. And so trying to talk through really how you make that which is kind of invisible to nine justices who sit in a marble palace on one first street in D.C., how you make visible to them who you are and who your clients are and what America really looks like. Okay, well, you know, and to, to share your presentation for those that weren't here, how, how does a lawyer go about doing that? How do they penetrate this bubble? Well, I think it's important to sort of understand that the framing is that the court is narrower now than it's ever been. Okay, when you say narrow, what do you mean? Well, I mean a bunch of things. I mean, we have nine justices that went to two law schools, Harvard and Yale. That's right. We have nine justices, eight of whom come off the federal bench. Okay. We have nine justices who largely come from California or New York. The coast. Uh, you know, the cities that Justice Scalia says California isn't even a state anyway. But, <laughs> you know, that they there is this just incredible narrowness of life experience, of professional experience, a sort of bandwidth of the kinds of people they see and what they read and who they are. And that this is also the most polarized court we've ever seen. We have the first court in history, where every single conservative was appointed by a Republican, every liberal was appointed by a Democrat, we're never going to see anyone surprise us again. And so this court is really sealed off in a lot of ways, sealed off to new ideas, sealed off to different experiences. And the question and the challenge, I think, for the audience is how do just regular people with regular cases and regular injustices make it past this kind of hydroponically sealed <laughs> system to get in. And it's important really to understand that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if you had a meritorious case and you sought cert at the court and the court granted it, you might get there. The court used to hear a couple hundred cases a year. Now they hear 70. 
And the vast majority of those cases are brought by 66 attorneys who specialize in Supreme Court litigation. And the chance of just being like a kind of bad news bear guy who shambles into the court in a brown suit and loafers and says, hey, I've got a case, the chances are really diminishing with every passing year. And so I think in part because of the specialized Supreme Court bar, in part because the justices are really sealed off from any kind of profession that might be interesting or challenging, not that being a federal judge isn't interesting and challenging, but certainly it's not America. It doesn't reflect how we live. And so then the question is, going back to your original question, so so how do you become that guy in that brown suit? Right. Well, that's a good question. And so let me, let me hit you on flat-footed, all right? So now you mentioned, you know, you've got the nominees are, are nominated by, uh, you know, a very predictable party and this person, you know, this person will line up with their political views. And so this is a question because I love, I listen to the full range of the radio dial when it comes to politics. I just love to hear what everybody's thinking. And so one of the things I hear consistently on, you know, right now it's pretty much two sides of a coin, you know, for the most part, the majority is either in the Democrat party or in the Republican party, but both sides seem to complain that the, there's a lot of legislation from the bench and that uh, the, the court has become politicized when it should not be. So are you are you seeing that? Well, I know that's a pretty pretty uh, solid uh, question there, but uh, what are you seeing? Do you agree that you think there's, there's some legislation from the bench? Well, I don't disagree. I think the court has inserted itself into virtually every hot-button social issue that uh, Americans are contending with now, and, you know, that runs the gamut from guns, abortion, affirmative action, racial um, remediation. So there's not no issue the court hasn't put itself into. I think where those complaints on either side of the AM dial go wrong is saying only the other side does it, right? Right, right. I mean, I think that conservatives like to say when the Supreme Court strikes down bans on gay marriage that, oh my God, this is an unelected federal judiciary imposing law on the whole country. But that's the same as when the court strikes down the D.C. gun ban, right? And that's also, you know, pu- pushing aside legislatively enacted, you know, finally properly enacted legislation and finding a constitutional right where no- one didn't exist. So I think it's certainly a fair assessment that the court has, without a doubt, pushed itself into every issue of our time. I think it's not fair to say that when the court does something I like, it's not legislating from the bench. Right, right. When the court does something I don't like, hey, wait, that's an you know, activist judiciary. That's where I think that that complaint really kind of starts to falter. So let's get back to penetrating that bubble. So we, we, I guess we have, even though they're on different sides of the political aisle, there's sort of a homogenous recruiting ground for, for our Supreme Court justices. So let's get into penetrating that bubble. I, have you found some recommendations? Have you talked with some attorneys that have made some recommendations? Like if you want to get before the Supreme Court and argue your case, you got to do this. Have, have you heard some things? Well, I talked a lot today about Roberta Kaplan, who argued the Edie Windsor case, right? That was the defense of marriage case where the court struck down a key provision of DOMA uh, because uh, for the first time the court said, hey, you know, this is not fair. This really uh, impinges on the rights of gay married couples. And what was interesting, and I just finished Robbie Kaplan's book about Windsor, and uh, it's really striking because it is about a litigator, admittedly in a Ralph Lauren suit, not like a dirty brown one, but kind of just a New York City litigator who had no background in civil rights litigation, who 
didn't, I think, lie awake at night dreaming of being at the Supreme Court, but simply just fell in love with this woman, Edie Windsor, uh, and her partner, Thea Spire, who had been married for years and years and years and were not being afforded the rights and privileges of that marriage by the federal government, who were being whacked with, uh, you know, payments that they had to make because the court didn't recognize their marriage. And I think, really, to me, what was inspiring and why I talked about uh, Robbie Kaplan so much today is that at every turn, she had the opportunity to hand this over, either to the big groups, right? There were uh, all sorts of uh, gay rights litigation groups that could have taken this case away from her. When it was time to argue it at the U.S. Supreme Court, she got wind of the fact that, oh, Elena Kagan says people who argue for the first time at the court lose. Maybe I should give it to, you know, one of these superstar Supreme Court litigators. At every turn, she held on to it. She just was like, I know this case. I love this case. This is my people. This matters to me. It wasn't ego and it wasn't sort of narcissism or some sense of God-given, you know, mission. It was just, she loved this case and she wanted to argue it. And she got up and argued it at the U.S. Supreme Court and she won. And to me, I think so much of the lessons are about finding a plaintiff who the court sees themselves in her. Okay. There was so a, there's one critical element that there. That was one piece of it that I talked about today that I think she very carefully marketed, and I don't mean that in a cynical way, Edie Windsor as someone that the justices would recognize, someone who couldn't say at her workplace, I'm married to another woman, I love her, we've been together for decades. I think that she wanted to bring something familiar to the justices, and she did that. I think there was this tenaciousness of not letting anyone say to her, okay, you did a job here, pat, pat, let one of the big boys take it, and she didn't do that. And then I think that when, you know, she got to the court, and kind of the script that she had for herself wasn't entirely working. She was just really nimble and smart and said some things that found their way into the final opinion. You know, there's this amazing line that she imported from on her feet from something Justice Kennedy had written in a prior case, sort of saying, no, times can blind people to what is bigotry and what is acceptable. And that makes its way, you know, into oral argument. It makes its way into the opinion. So it seems to me like at every turn, given the option to not be brave, she's just like, yeah, I could could play here. I could do this. And she did. And so to me, I think as a template for you know, particularly lawyers in tiny firms who think like, sure, I have this great case, but like, I I don't think this court is interested in me. I think the the sort of message is make them interested. Okay, so that's on the advocate. So that's what an advocate can do to get before the Supreme Court to get their their clients matter there. But uh, in your experiences covering the Supreme Court, have you found that certain issues are going to make it? versus other ones. And you're nodding, so obviously the answer is yes, but what are some of the issues that seem to come up, that seem to get through that breach up to the Supreme Court? It's such a good question. I mean, one of the questions I'm often asked is, how is it that a gun case hasn't come back to the court? Uh, The court has batted away several of them, and there's a whole lot that they left open in Heller and in McDonald that they have to resolve, and they're just not taking them. So I think the easiest answer is, You know, there's a story that is famously told of Justice Brennan, and Justice Brennan used to say to his clerks on the very first day, he'd be like, what is the single most important constitutional doctrine there is? And they'd all go, jabber, jabber, commerce clause, blah, blah, you know, (laughs) Caroline footnote, whatever. They would just try to be smart, and he'd be like, no, the single most important constitutional principle is the rule of five. 
You need to get five votes. And that's <laughs> all that matters. And I don't think he was doing it to be entirely cynical or dismissive. He was just saying, like, there has to be five votes or this is all not a project. And I think we see a lot at the court. And, you know, it's sort of famously said that this is Justice Kennedy's world. We all just live in it. This is Anthony Kennedy's world. And I think you see a lot of anxiety on the part of the other justices about taking a case and not knowing which way he's going to go. And probably the best example of that is in the abortion cases where the court hasn't actually heard an abortion case since 2007. That's in large part because I think on both sides, you have four votes to take it, but you're not going to take it unless you know you have five votes on your side. And so there's this really kind of galactic game of chicken with Anthony Kennedy at the center that has been, I think, a big mover in what the court hears and doesn't hear. And, you know, obviously there are all sorts of rules for when the court has to grant cert on a case, right? If there's a circuit split, if there's, uh, you know, a federal constitutional issue. So there's certainly... You know, nobody is going to say that there aren't drivers that make some cases more urgent to the court. But, you know, the court stopped hearing Guantanamo cases in the middle of hearing Guantanamo cases. They just seem to get bored and walk away, leave it to the D.C. Circuit to handle it. So I think they do get bored. I think that there are issues that they feel right now. Race is a big, big, big one. Religious freedom all they can think about. Those are the issues that are interesting to them. And so those are the issues that keep coming up. Then there are other issues that they haven't resolved. And I think guns is a good example. Probably abortion is a good example, although they may have to take one this year. But I think those issues, they can just keep saying, like, we're going to hit the snooze button for another term and see what happens. Well, so I think you're reporting some really, really interesting times. And so we've been, uh, we've had a couple of, uh, quite a few uh, shows recently uh, on the Supreme Court, and especially the latest session, which was explosive. You know, they were just very explosive, and there's predictions that the next session is going to be similarly, equally, or even greater uh, as far as its explosiveness and controversy. And so one of the questions uh, that kept coming up in some of our reoccurring shows was sort of decorum, you know, respect for one another, especially in the opinions. And these are obviously, the more explosive it is, the more important the issue is to the public. And that's why we have the Supreme Court to make these decisions. And so there's been some complaints that perhaps the respect and the decorum for one another hasn't been as present uh, in the Supreme Court. I just wanted, you know, to get your opinion on this. Since you regularly report on that and you read these opinions, are you seeing that? Are you seeing sort of a, a decrease in respect for one another, uh, at least in the form of a written opinion? It's such a good question because I think there's an empirical piece, okay. which is, you know, when you talk to legal historians, they say, oh, heck, you should have seen, you know, <laughs> what was going on in Charles Evan Hughes's time. You know, like, we think this is really bad. But we forget that there were justices who simply would not talk to other justices ever because that justice was a Jew, right? Like, that's a decorum problem. Yeah, that's... And, you know, you have to sort of a little bit see Amongst some other problems. Right. I mean, in the scope of history, I think that you could certainly say, A, this is a very cordial court. And B, uh, there have been some very, very nasty and stinging dissents uh, over the course of history. That said, I can certainly say I came out of last term in the end of June and I was like, my eyes were Googling around like Cookie Monster. I felt like I had never seen, you know, Justice Scalia saying anyone who signs this opinion should put their head in a bag. You know, this reads like a fortune cookie. I mean, this sort of seemed to transcend the usual Scalia. Argel 
Orgel thing and turned into you are in bad faith and you're lying to the people. That seemed like a kind of a line to me that I had not seen crossed. And the reason Scalia's name comes up often is it's almost always him. Um, I think I will say, you know, Justice Breyer was asked this question by Stephen Colbert two weeks ago. And he said, I, in all my years sitting, I've never seen one mean word. I don't think that's true. (laughs) I think (laughs) that there are probably some sharp words. And I think that the dissents are far sharper than they need to be. But I do think that the justices have this amazing control-alt-delete that is the summer. You know, they all go away and they give their speeches and they look at themselves in the mirror and they say, I'm okay. It's okay. Yeah, he called me an idiot, but I'm okay. And they come back in October and certainly, you know, from this first sitting that we just had in the last two weeks, I didn't see evidence of lingering ill will or bad feeling. I do think they have a capacity to kind of blow it off, although there's pretty good data that shows that Scalia has pushed away, like Sandra Day O'Connor modulated herself away from the right to the center of the court in no small part because of the way he wrote about her. So I think it's insane to think it doesn't happen. And I think it's equally insane to say it has no impact. I think it does have an impact. I think we probably won't know for 30 years when we see their conference notes what the impact was. Well, so now we're in the juicy part of the discussion here. So <laughs> now I, I, like I said, I like to, I like to surf primarily both sides of the political dial when I'm listening to, uh, I guess we're podcasting. I love to listen to talk radio and get all the formats, sports radio and, and political radio. I love it. I just, I'm addicted to it. And so, but one of the comments I hear routinely on both sides is that they feel that this last particular session of the Supreme Court swung left of center. But, and the same people are saying they're predicting this next session, this upcoming session, the session that um, is going to swing right of center. And so I just want to know, based on based on what you've seen in your experience, do you think last session swung left and do you think the, uh, the next session is going to swing right? I think it's indisputable that the left won more than it lost, and it won a lot more than it expected to win, I think, in the 2014 term. I think that the slight caveat I have to that is, and Ian Milheiser has written really smartly about this at Think Progress, that a lot of the places where the left quote-unquote won were really overreaching cases. So if you look at King versus Burwell, the Obamacare challenge, that was kind of a crazy Hail Mary piece of litigation that was trying to bring down all of Obamacare based on four words. So I think that what Ian's point has been is that it wasn't like these were huge wins for the left. It was more pushing back a big, big sea of challenges that would have been unbelievable reaches for the court. And when you saw John Roberts push back in King versus Burwell, it wasn't like he was voting left. He was voting for a big pro-business piece of legislation that uh, would very much be aligned with his views. That wasn't a left-right thing. That was, are you going to vote with the Tea Party to take down Obamacare? Oh, you're not. So I, I think it's we have to be careful looking at the places where Kennedy or Roberts kind of quote-unquote defected from the right. They weren't defecting. They were defecting from a very, very 
coherent Tea Party view of what courts do, and that they don't agree with. So I think that's one big qualifier. Uh, I think the other big qualifier is that in a lot of the cases where uh, the left won, it wasn't so much because the left prevailed, but that the right was eating each other's faces off. And so you had a lot of cases where Scalia goes after Thomas, Thomas votes alone. You know, the left wing of the court, and this was a a common criticism that a lot of people had 10 years ago, was they were all kind of marching around to the tune of their own bongos. You know, nobody sort of cared about being strategic. They just voted as they voted. Now we're really seeing that shift to the right wing of the court. And so the left was almost military in its decision to vote as a block. And you really see this in Obergefell, the the same-sex marriage case, where I am quite certain someone would have happily written a concurrence saying, here's what Justice Kennedy meant to say. Here's the standard of scrutiny. And here's what this means going forward for civil rights. They didn't write it. They just let him have his opinion. And I think that the right way, we saw every single conservative justice wrote their own dissent. So I do think that one of the things we really saw last term that was interesting was this collapse of the idea that the right flank of the court works in lockstep. And I guess just to the final piece of your question, the predictions that this year it's going to swing to the right, we're seeing a lot of 2.0 cases. We're seeing Fisher, the affirmative action case coming back. We're seeing union fees as speech come back in Friedrich. We're seeing one person, one vote. So a lot of these are cases that the court has signaled that they would like to revisit in order to do something more dramatic, we're seeing those come back. And I do think that there's reason to believe, and certainly abortion, I think, if the court uh, accepts the Texas abortion case, I think there's reason to believe that this will be the court doing what the conservatives have done so well, which is do it small, nobody notices, wait a couple of years, do it big. So we saw that in Citizens United, saw it in Shelby County. We've seen small erosions on abortion, small erosions on affirmative action. We've seen the court say, we're not quite ready to do away with Abood, the 1977 case about funding public sector unions. But we might be willing to do it now. And those are the cases that are coming up. Okay. So I've got one last question for you and I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. So get ready. Here it comes. So beside yourself, who is your favorite rider on the Supreme Court who reports on it? That is ridiculously unfair. (laughs) This is the most incestuous, loving, supporting. (laughs) We're basically a book group. I mean, we really are the equivalent of like getting together and drinking wine and talking about feelings. This is not a press corps that uh, plays favorites. I I would say, uh, if I can answer that, by triangulating and hopefully deflecting and maybe making you forget your question. Um, (laughs) Not going to happen. Not going to (laughs) happen. I think that it is a press corps that is really... People stay forever. You know, we joke about the justices all pushing 80. Like, we're all pushing 80 on the press corps. Nobody leaves this beat. I think that Adam Liptak at the New York Times is doing really interesting new reporting, you know, rooted in law reviews, rooted in data that I haven't seen before, and I think it's fantastic. I think that Joan Biskupic, who is writing for Reuters and doing deep 
autobiographical, biographical, looking at the justices as people. That was not done for a long time. And then, of course, I just have to flag Nina Totenberg and the Dirty <laughs> Read, who reads the transcripts in her voices and just is incandescently fantastic. So there's a lot of, you know, people have this notion that all Supreme Court reporters are the same. But if you're as deep in the weeds as I am, <laughs> they're all not the same. And I think they're all using a slightly different prism to shed light on a, on a court that's otherwise almost in complete darkness. Okay, well, that was a wonderful deflection of my question. So, well, it looks like we've run out of time for our show today, but I did want to give our listeners an opportunity. They want to ask some questions. They want to follow your work. What's the best way to reach out to you? Best way to reach out is either uh, my name, Dahlia.Lithwick at Slate.com. Okay. Or uh, find me on Facebook. I am a prolific Facebooker. That's I how we found you. Yeah, I have not tweeted in two years. Oh, you got uh, to start tweeting. Uh, you know, when Justice Breyer started calling it the tweeter, I felt like I was okay just putting it behind me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, and folks should listen to Amicus, which is Slate Supreme Court podcast. We answer all our letters, so um, you can certainly write to us, Care of Amicus. Great. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti signing off from Chicago. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.